Digital Gonzo, episode 56, dated Wednesday the 8th of February, 2012. The Harry Potter movie reviews, year three. The Prisoner of Azkaban. Turn to page 394. Little Lord Lady at 12 o'clock! Three, two, yes! Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban prison. He's a murderer. Sirius Black is the reason the Potters are dead. And now he wants to finish what he started. I want you to swear to me you won't go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? There's something moving out there. It was a Dementor, one of the guards of Azkaban, who's searching the train for Sirius Black. It is not in the nature of a Dementor to be forgiving. Harry faces a troubling and very personal year at Hogwarts. He finds out a lot more about his parents, and the movies take on a whole new direction. We are back for the third of eight podcasts to discuss what for many is their favourite book of the series, and what remains debatably a flawed but intriguing adaptation to the screen. It is a packed cabin on the good ship Gonzo tonight. With me are Chris Brown of the Married Gamers, whose wife you will have heard on our first instalment. Hello. Gameburst's very own Arnold Vosloo, Mr. James Batchelor. No! no! <laughs> <laughs> James's wingman, also of Gameburst, and the KDS 2.0 show, the most recent episode of which I guested on Mr. Neil Taylor. Expecto Patronum. And from Gamerdork Rerolled, we have the very lovely Professor Leah Haydu. Oh, I'm a professor now. Does that mean I get to sit at the big table with all the big kids? Can you turn into a cat? I, I can neither confirm nor deny. And finally, Gonzo Planet's own Hermione Granger, Sharon Shaw. Hello. As soon as Azkaban starts, and especially if you've just watched the first two films, you are immediately struck by the new direction. At first it feels like a different film series, but over time the movies that followed were far closer in tone to this outing, so the evolution of stylistic continuity was maintained. What that boils down to is the absence of safe, predictable, systemic filmmaking. This could not be mistaken for a Hollywood picture. Its indie sensibilities have scrubbed away the glossy sheen. The camera is now alive and moving, given a dramatic immediacy. The screen is now filled with detail that requires multiple viewings to take in entirely. The young actors are finally acting, delivering their lines with comfortable assurance and a deeper affinity with their characters. 
For the first two outings, we were introduced to the magical world, one entirely separate from our own, at once exotic and antiquated, evoking Charles Dickens, Enid Blyton, and C.S. Lewis. It was a resounding success, no doubt, but rarely made the viewer think, this could actually happen. But the third book is a gear change for the literary series, and the film follows suit. This time, and from now on, the magical is skillfully blended with the mundane, in a way that accentuates what is special about the former, whilst grounding it in the reality of the latter. There's a newfound maturity, dry humour, and emotional subtlety to be found here, along with a steadily increasing roster of colourful, serious characters played by the cream of British talent. The cinematic world expands richly over the next few years now finally affecting the books as well as vice versa, until by the eighth instalment we are so invested in Harry's magical world that it's not hard to believe in it genuinely existing, a mere shadow's breadth from our own, and the cataclysmic events spilling over into the mundanity of our muggle existence. Okay, just a few little tidbits about the filmmaking before we go in. Alfonso Cuaron was initially nervous about accepting, as he had not read any of the books or seen the films. After reading the series, he changed his mind and signed on to direct, as he had immediately connected to the story. Cuaron's appointment pleased J.K. Rowling, who loved his film Ichi Mama Tambien, recommended, and was impressed with his adaptation of A Little Princess. Rowling allowed Cuaron to make minor changes to the book, uh, on the condition that he stuck to the book's spirit. She allowed him to place a sundial in the Hogwarts grounds, but rejected the graveyard, as she said that, that would play an important part in the then-unreleased sixth book. Rowling said that she got goosebumps when she saw several moments in the film as they inadvertently referred to events in the final two books. She stated, people are going to look back on this film and think that those were put in deliberately as clues. Before filming began, Quirin asked each of the three leads to write an essay about their characters in first person to better understand them. Emma Watson turned in a 16-page essay. Daniel Radcliffe turned in a simple one-page summary, and Rupert Grint never wrote one. (laughs) (laughs) That's so in keeping with the characters, though. Absolutely. brilliant. Uh, I I don't understand the question. (laughs) (laughs) My rat ate it. (laughs) I've got detention, haven't I? So, okay, Harry and the Dursleys. Chris, your thoughts? Yes. Well, from the from the start of the film, you know, we're introduced once again to the Dursleys' home, but already it feels different. There's a purposeful change to to the home. Everything is very cramped now. If you, if you notice those scenes, the only time there's any space that you really feel it's uh, when when the uh, ant flies out the back door. You know, one thing I really love about this film, and th- and this is my favorite film of of all eight, because it is so concerned about breathing life into these books and not being so tied up with nuance and details and subplots and all that sort of stuff that Columbus before him felt compelled that he had to include. There was a definite step change in Harry's attitude in the in the Dursley scenes because, like, you don't notice as much when he's at school because everyone around him is is the same but because they've aged that much more between films because then as alex said which i didn't know until i listened to gonzo they filmed chamber straight after philosophers which is why they're so they're they're still so young this one was filmed a good year or so after and you can see how much they've grown voices of deaton and so forth and harry's attitude has changed he's he's a lot more kind of yes and he's kind of he's kind of braver fighting back what's the you know if you don't behave i will if she will She's, he's got a bit more kind of that teenage rebellious spirit in him. Mm. And 
you don't notice as much when he's at Hogwarts because everyone is kind of going through the same things. But it, this is the one where you really notice that he's become how much he's grown up, either through just naturally becoming a teenager or through the stuff he's had to face. It does kind of have that effect of showing how how Harry's worldview has changed at this point. And it's even more pronounced in the book because it goes through a, a whole Harry having the note uh, to let him go out to Hogsmeade. And he doesn't just kind of casually mention it to Vernon. He says, listen, you know, it, it might be really hard for me to remember that I'm supposed to be going to this criminal institution school. So, you know, you might want to just own up and sign this so that I don't embarrass you in front of everybody. And it, he he's almost... He's almost well. He is manipulative about it, mm. uh, and it doesn't. That that they toned down a little bit, and I think maybe that was that was okay. I think maybe they didn't need to to have him being that manipulative right out of the gate. But um, but yeah, you can still see that he's he's not quite as uh, willing to bend over as he was in in maybe the first book or so. I think a lot of that is um, his growing sense of self reliance, which you know is. is mm-hmm. James said kind of comes with being a teenager anyway what he's learned and what he's now becoming capable of um, he knows that if they push him too far he's now got spells in his arsenal that he could use against them and I think that does give him that edge a little bit and makes him feel a bit more like um, he has some rights to stand up for here and he's going to having said that he is still 13 and this is a big step for him he storms out with his suitcase with no genuine direction. I mean, he's going to go to a midpoint between Hogwarts and the Dursleys, but he doesn't know where that midpoint is. He just knows he's got to get out of there. But he's still a 13-year-old kid alone, and effectively with no plan. I don't think he's intending to go to Hogwarts, is he? Because he he thinks he's going to be expelled for using magic. Ah, uh, yeah. He's he's just he is literally just randomly running away. He's got no no destination in mind at that stage, if I remember rightly. I suppose it's just like a, a self, teenage self destruction thing of right. I suppose if I'm expelled, I might as well be on my own and not stuck here. I've not made a bullet point about the night bus because I actually really liked it in the book, but in this, it's a li- once you've seen it about seven times, it's a little bit kind of let's just get the night bus over with, shall we? It's one of the few moments in this movie that it's a little bit too cartoony. Mm, yeah. Uh, especially there's a moment later on towards the end of the movie that's very cartoony that I noticed as well. I think I know the bit you're talking about. Is it to do with the Whomping Willow? It is. I love that bit, but at the same time it is cartoony. I completely get what you mean. It's like Wiley Coyote. <laughs> yeah, it really well, is a know, moment like that. Right after that, one of my favorite scenes of the whole film, when Harry talks to... Um, uh, with, no, well, no. Right after that, when he talks to uh, to Weasley's, uh, uh, you know, oh, the head oh. of the Weasley, fun, yeah, and they're they're in the pub setting, and watch that scene over again. I I watched that a couple times uh, yesterday, and just watched how that scene progresses. It it's it's an homage to Brian De Palma. It's one long take, and it's it is so alive and and. The, the scenery, you know, I mean, this happens a lot during this film, but you could just watch over and over and again and just, just absorb what's going on all around mm. Harry. And, and I think that's reflective of, of, of the movie is, yes, this movie is Harry Potter. It says so in the title, but the, but this is a living, breathing world that you get to experience. So, so in the scene where, where it's being, you know, dad is telling, oh. uh, thank you, Arthur Weasley <laughs> is, is telling Harry that, you know, you gotta be careful and whatnot. As you watch the um, 
the way magic is used in this film, you know, there's a little bit of a simple magician parlorship that, that makes it feel, um, uh, mundane. You know, like, yeah, of course, why wouldn't we use magic to turn over tables and stuff like this? And then in the background, there's an, uh, an Indian family learning, you know, teaching kids how to, uh, charm, you know, snakes and stuff like that. And, and it's one long take going through, uh, various places in the set. And you see, like, the wanted poster for Sirius Black. And you see how the camera just sort of moves and sways. And and the movement of the camera in the entire film is representative of this. And it's just it's just an utter delight to see how that uh, plays and, and how lighting is so dang important in this film. Especially, you know, we'll talk about later in, in, in The Shrieking Shack. Um, it's just this beautifully put-together movie that happens to be a Harry Potter um, tentpole major Hollywood film. And, it, you know, it's, I, again, I'll just watch that scene over and over for, for just the nuances and, and filmmaking techniques that, god damn beautiful. Oh, I'm sorry. I know you can say god damn. That's fine. Uh, everything that Chris has said is wonderful as far as it goes, but I have a real problem with this scene. Uh, and it's nothing to do with the filmmaking. It's just to do with something that they left out. And I feel like I'm always the one who's pulling the book in. But um, No, 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 go for it. We need this perspective because there are a lot of book fans out there going, they didn't mention this. Well, there is there is something that they left out in the book that I really would have liked to see in this part of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And it's that in the book, there is a... Well, first of all, they spend a lot more time in um, in the inn and in the pub. The leaky cauldron. Yes, in the leaky cauldron, because um, Harry's there for a couple of weeks and doesn't actually meet up with everybody until the very end. Yeah. But the whole reason that he even finds out that Sirius is supposedly going to be coming after him is not initially that Arthur Weasley comes up and volunteers this information. It's that he hears Mr. and Mrs. Weasley having an all-out fight as to whether they should tell him or not. She's Mm. being extremely protective and saying, you know, no, we can't do this. And he's being extremely protective in another way and saying, no, we have to do this. And I really missed that. In in, And he he overhears them is the only reason that he even finds out in the first place. And Mr. Weasley comes to him later on and starts to tell him. And he says, no, no, it's okay. I already overheard. So he, I mean, there, there, you don't get that in in the movie, and I, I, yeah. I missed that. I, I mean, the, and the scene is wonderful as far as it's filmed. But I, I don't disagree with anything that Chris said, but, um, but yeah, I, I really, I would have liked to see that. I'm going to concur with both of you. I also love the way that the scene is filmed. I also miss the fact that it was found out in a more organic way and less in a kind of, Harry, I've got some exposition to tell you, mm-hmm. which is, to me, one of the chief failings of this film, the expositionary demon that looms itself repeatedly, because there is so much to get through. There are some big omissions in terms of, you know, omissions in terms of the, the lore and the storyline, which I'm sure we'll get onto later, which could have just been covered by just a paragraph. Like, you know, the, the way that, as you say, like, they so inorganically kind of do some Basil exposition, you know, or and almost as you know, Captain kind of speeches. Just one more of those would have cleared up a lot of the things that I think some of the fans really hate. Like, uh, this could be my favourite film if it hadn't left out certain bits of information. But even just one more of those, you know, to basically talking a bit more about Sirius's past and the events of that, and Mooney won't tell Patrick Prongs, if it had been done as just another Basil Exposition scene, that's inelegant. There's got mm. to be a better way, and it is done better in later films. It's also a problem all the films have had. 
yeah. uh, one of the problems with the entire series itself is the fact they started filming the series before the books were finished, so you end up with a lot of things omitted that needed to be in there. Indeed, and a lot of things which were given a bit too much screen time that really, yeah, probably didn't need to be in there, but they didn't know at the time. Even Rowling didn't know what absolutely needed to be in there and what really could have been left out. This is certainly the one where like, you, get, you get to see a lot more of that world. The first two films, you see very few areas of Hogwarts, relatively, and it's from this one onwards that you start to see a lot more, so we didn't really see what's the courtyard where the Axeman is sitting. This, this is the first one we saw the big long wooden bridge, which obviously you see in like you know, all the rest of the films, and you know, gets blown up in the last one. This is the one where they start to expand Hogwarts, and you see more of it. And when you watch back the first two, when you see any kind of flying scenes, where so like was it when the car goes over it, etc. It's all there, and I believe I saw on a, on a documentary that they had a model of Hogwarts from the beginning, which had everything, everything planned out. So the little boathouse, which you don't see the boathouse until the end of the last film, it is there in the plan from the first film, and it's even, um, to bring this onto a kind of gamey note, the, the makers of the video games had access to that model and rendered that entire world based on that model in the video game so you could explore every inch of Hogwarts as it is in this model as it is in the film and you just you see a lot more of it in this film and onwards whereas you know like the the, the first two were kind of a taster one thing I do um, really really like about the um, the design of the the world for this one and it applies I was I was thinking about it mainly in terms of the um, the beyond Hogwarts sets the the leaky cauldron and um, uh, even the night bus fits with this actually that they've made they have made everything cramped and what they they seem to have done with it all is made everything long and tall and there's very much this sense of the magical world fitting in the spaces between the Muggle world, and you have, you know, the leaky cauldron is squeezed in between these buildings in uh, in London, and the night bus is very tall and thin, and it squeezes in between other things, and you know they make the comment about Muggles don't see what they they don't want to see, which kind of yeah. negates Mrs. Weasley being terrified of anyone seeing Harry and Ron in the car, because surely if they didn't want to see it, they just wouldn't see it. Hogsmeade, you've got all these sort of quite n- narrow streets, and um, it, it's there's more of a sense of of wideness because of the snow but it's it's still quite overhanging uh, old-fashioned style buildings um and it's it just gives you this sense of of the whole magical world being hidden in plain sight almost in in the muggle world and that muggles would just go past it and just not see it and not you know just ignore anything about it and then you extend that to Hogwarts and it's now between mountains and you've got these uh, places hidden in valleys and I just I love that idea of it being there all around you but muggles just don't see it they just look at the the bits to the side of it and and that line has continued throughout throughout the remaining films you know and, and made perfectly crystal in the unserious black's residence you know oh yeah the black house yes that was oh, the yeah, other it, set I was thinking of it scrolls in between yes good, good call so, James, it, it exists in the space between spaces. Oh, God. <laughs> Magnetic. Well, no. One thing I did notice, and I'm pretty sure that everyone would have noticed as well. Well, two things, actually. One, Ian Brown is in this. He was the uh, guy stirring the, what looks like porridge, uh, using magic, whilst reading A Brief History of Time uh, at the Leaky Cauldron. Uh, and two, ones now make noises, and they only make noises in this one film. Every time anyone uses a spell, it goes... Oh, is, that, is that the whistly sound? Yeah. Yes. 
only in this film. Now, I completely get why they started doing it. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant reason. And I completely get why they stopped doing it. It is also a brilliant reason. They started doing it because they wanted to make magic feel like it had more of a... It was more alive, like it was there. If you just point a wand at something and something happens, there isn't quite so much of a connection. The sound is in there to connect the act with the reaction. And you're like, ah, it's a cause and effect thing. They took it out because it was quite distracting. And the, every, the magic is used so many times that they're like, okay, so what, when Cornelius Fudge sticks his wand against his neck in Goblet and just talks to the entire stadium, is the stadium going to go, like feedback or something for one second? <laughs> that would have been kind of funny, but they stopped doing it. And I could, I, like I said, I understand why. But it's a weird, almost like a, an audio continuity area with the rest of the seven other films. One, two, three. Dementors and the Patronus. J.K. Rowling has, in her time, suffered from uh, pretty severe depression, and I myself have also suffered from depression. I'm fairly certain at least one other person on this podcast has been uh, pretty low at times as well. That's me. I, I'm yeah. <laughs> Not even going to say who I was talking about. It could be all of you. Yeah. Um, but I, I think <laughs> it's probably fa- fair to say that anyone smart enough to be listening to this right now has gotten. Uh, pretty down on themselves at some point in their life. And um, if you've actually suffered from genuine depression, the Dementors are a perfect allegory for how black and destructive that can get. From the sounds of how, how she describes it, it was, it was very bad for Joe. So she has encapsulated and immortalized her depression as these Dementors. They're fascinating. They're ring raids. They're death. They're the black dog on the shoulder. Interesting and, but, choice of words. But the way she's described of getting rid of them and actually ridding yourself of the black ghost, it, it fascinates me. And it's, it's been um, really comforting in the years since to be able to sort of you know, look at this as allegorical of, of focusing on the absolute best in life. Just going to say, I love the notion of Dementors, the inclusion of them in the Harry Potter universe, what they represent. 
I, like you, I absolutely love the creation and inclusion of the Dementors, especially in this story. Um, not only what they represent in an allegory sense, but also what they represent in this world. They are very, very scary things. Uh, and one of my big problems with the, just what they did in this movie is um, we get a very touching scene where Harry is trying to learn the, exp- the Patronus spell. And it, I don't think the movie really deals with why he struggles, because while he wants to learn the spell in the books, it's made very clear that one of the reasons why he he struggles so hard is because he gets he, is it his mother's voice he hears? Yes. It, and it's the like the first time he he's heard his mother's voice, so he has this weird thing going off inside his head of while he wants to learn the spell to protect himself he also wants to hear his mother's voice and it's it just feels a real shame that that's that's yeah. never really hit upon in in the movie because it's it's such a heartbreaking moment in the book when you when it, you sort of realize this is why harry's doing it he wants to hear his mother because he has no connection there's very little of his uh, of his parents he's always being told he looks like you know his dad james and he's got his mother's eyes but he has sort of no connection and he in this he sort of he slowly starts to find that connection and I, I really, really hate the fact that's not in the movies, but such a touching moment in the book. Didn't that extend in the book to... Initially, he'd heard um, his mother screaming his name. Mm. When he worked out it was his mother screaming the name, the more the Dementors affected him, the more he could hear more of the last moments, not just his mother, but his, his both his parents. So he could hear James saying, you know, Lily, get Harry out. I believe like it, he could actually hear the moment when everything happened when the Dementors attacked him and that was never covered in the film in the film all you hear is one Harry the Boggart scene is just as much fun in the, is it probably actually more fun in the movie than it is in the book just to see all these crazy creations the only thing that slightly boggles me and maybe it's just a me thing is I, I can't remember who it is it seems to be afraid of snakes and her ridiculous spell is the creepy clown oh, yes. in the box. it's not yes. just you yes. that clown is terrifying <laughs> I think the, the clown o- would have been what the Boggart would turn into for me <laughs> the only thing that would have been creepier than that clown Jack in the Box would have been um, Tim Curry from It that is the yes. only oh, clown that I no. can think of that's creeper just as a side um, I read on the uh, on the Harry Potter wiki which has been invaluable to me in the past few days Tom Riddle's Boggart turns into his own corpse that says when so much when does he encounter a, a Boggart I can't remember that I think that is basically from Pottermore. I think that Joe Rowling has revealed that fact, and it's found as well to the Harry Potter wiki. It right. never actually happens, but that makes so much sense. Yeah. So hearkening back to the Star Wars episodes that we did, the fundamental difference between the light and dark side of the Force is that the light side accepts death, the dark side fights it. For me, that you know, this film is very thematic, and I, one thing I really enjoyed about the Bogart scene, you know, and, and we're talking about light and dark again. Lupin is is you know the professor of dark arts, and yet the most fun inside Hogwarts is here in his lessons. Mm. And I, I just I really enjoy that sort of uh, uh, duality. You know, here they're fighting against evil, evil stuff, but they're having so much fun doing it. And then you know when Lupin quote unquote gets sick. You know, it's the most boring lecture from Snape when he has to take over the dark arts for that lesson. And one other thing I really, really, really wanted to point out is uh, in in this age in which um, we have uh, a lot of uh, teen gay suicides, um, where where the issue of bullying is just uh, 
causing a lot of our, our youth to uh, go to extremes and uh, sometimes even very tragic extremes. At Hogwarts, these these outsiders are sort of embraced and and uh, and the bullies have have glass jaws, and I think that's that's representative in in this Bogart. Those things we fear can be overcome if we support one another. If we instill, you know, whether it's you know learning that that Patronus, you know. We we take the good times and we hold on to them and and in in a sense you know as as uh, all these videos attest it gets better and I think um, I, that's one of the messages of this film that I, that I really in, in enjoyed and it's played out in these Bogarts and and how we deal with these uh, this cr- these creatures the dementors that just want to like crush and steal our souls our spirits. It's very interesting that you actually uh, tied in there with uh, teen gay suicide because when Lupin leaves at the end, it's because um, it's become widely known that he's a werewolf and a lot of the parents of the kids don't want, and this is the way he says it, his sort teaching their kids. Right. It's Joe saying, look, this happens today. This happens now. This is still happening. This will still happen for a long time until we become more accepting. It's interesting because it's, it's like... If you are this way, there will always be people who will not accept you. You are going to have to find your own way in life, right. in the way that Lupin does, and surround it, yourself with people who do. And I, you know, I had to say I was I was a little bit disappointed in like later books and and movies where Lupin has a heterosexual relationship because you know not to get all you know like slash fiction you know on you, but I, mm-hmm. the, as it's presented in the film, I almost expected uh, this sort of. Uh, Relationship between different, him and yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I would not have been surprised, honestly. Just think, because he has a straight relationship later on, that doesn't mean he is entirely straight. I think the only real foray she makes into actual genuine homosexuality is the fact that Dumbledore was back in the day when it was actually relevant, gay. It's never brought up as a relevant point in the books at all. It's just backstory. And it, it plays into the Grindelwald relationship. Again, it could just have been a strong friendship. This effectively is irrelevant, and it shouldn't matter. See, I remember when that was actually announced, and people were going, "Oh my God, I didn't know that." How am I? And, and people were like, you know, obviously, I say, "Oh my God," I was at school. That's how people talked. Um, but yeah, people were. Now they just stunned. say, "OMG." Exactly. Yes, <laughs> this was before. This is um, before you know we started losing entire letters, entire words, and mashing them together, 1984 style. Um, like yeah, people were stunned that Dumbledore was gay. But I, I was like, well, what does it matter? Uh, did did she need to announce that? I'm, I'm I'm not saying I'm not saying well, you know, he shouldn't have been gay. That wasn't a backstory. But what my point was that had no effect on the story at all. And it came out after the last book. I had no effect on the story. I had no effect on the saga at all. So why has she told us this? Possibly to make that very point that it doesn't matter and it yeah. isn't relevant to the okay, story. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's, to, it's because she planted a seed in the minds of millions of children and then said that was a gay seed. <laughs> so many millions and of And all the people children. who'd already burnt the book once went out and bought another copy to burn it again. <laughs> and <laughs> everyone who hadn't and loved the book anyway went, hmm, oh, I, I suppose that anyone could be gay. And it just she will have changed people's viewpoints subtly not on mass not everyone's suddenly going to go wow suddenly that has opened my eyes but a lot of people quietly would have gone hmm. you see you never would have thought that because he doesn't act it 
Oh, well, maybe I don't know everything <laughs> about the world. Act gay. <laughs> um, it's almost like Tolkien, uh, you know, finding an, an ancient manuscript from, written by Tolkien going, by the way, Gandalf's gay. And so Ian McKellen going, I knew it all along. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, just briefly on Patronuses. Um, obviously, these play in very, very heavily in the, uh, the, the later films, and um, Harry's comes through as a stag in emulation of his father, Prongs. Really annoyed that wasn't revealed at any point. Yeah. Uh, or yeah, why? That, it doesn't even hint at the fact that, was it Padfoot, Worm... Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs. It, I don't think in the movie actually ever reveals who they are. No, no. that's my bugbear. Um, they but, don't even point that out in later films, despite the fact that the stag returns, obviously, every time he does a Patronus, they never mention... And, and he actually... Um, what's it, in the, the seventh film... When they say, oh, I thought that was your stag. No, mine's a stag. It yeah, has antlers. There's no point at all where they point. Well, this is like my dad. dad. Yeah. I mean, that, that would have been a very quick throwaway line just in case people weren't getting that for, what, six films. But if you still don't get it after, after that point. There, yeah. is, there is one tiny reference, um, and it's not specifically to James, but when uh, in Phoenix, Harry says to Snape, he's got Padfoot in the place where it's hidden. Yes. I think that's the only comment that actually connects James, Sirius, Remus and Peter to the Marauders. I ultimately, put it like this, if you were an adult watching this film, having never read the book, and you were asked who were Mooney, Wormtail, Pavard and Prongs, you'd probably work it out. Uh, they, the, but the, the, the weird thing that doesn't fit is that they told us everything else in plain English. Why not just tell us that? I, well, I would question, is it important? You know, if you're, if you're experiencing these as, as just films... Mm. You know, would would it be important? And and I'd say it's and, important to Harry and to see Harry just to see Harry get that Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs were his father and company. Just all it takes is a single line from 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 Lupin at the end, just sort of throw away. As Lupin's walking away, Harry could just been, I'll, I'll, I'll see you later, Mooney, and just just quietly, and then just have Lupin turn around and, and, and just give him a little nod, and then Harry just sort of just hold the map to him, just a little bit like it's precious because it's something of his father. Mm-hmm. That's all it took. That would be all it would take. And just like a little Mrs. Mooney, Mom, Tyler, Papa, and Prongs, just like, just, just slightly to the side, tilted on one side, just so you could, just, just so that people, it was, just so that we knew that Harry knew. I think the thing is as well, like, no, I, I completely agree, Chris, that it's not, it's not completely essential that you, you, want, you know that to understand the film, but it does give a lot of context to the finale of the film, i.e. the reason that um, Sirius and, and Pettigrew can turn into animals is because James worked out that Lupin was a werewolf when they were at school together. The reason that the Whomping Willow is even planted there is so that and it covered the passage to the Shrieking Shack, which is where Lupin could hide out. The reason they became animals was so they could keep him company. The reason Sirius chose to become a dog was to keep, so that so that he he was the one that could tackle um, Lupin if Lupin got out of hand. Because dog versus wolf, you know, they're fairly evenly matched. The reason that Pettigrew is a rat, which I didn't know until I read on um, Harry Potter Wiki at a, the, earlier today, is because the obviously the original way that the um, they stop the Whomping Willow, is there's a knot, there's a kind of a lump on the tree, which yeah. has to be touched by a small animal, and then the tree stops whomping. The willow stops whomping, allowing things into the passage, ah. and that's why Pettigrew is a rat. I so, think I actually did know that, but, yeah. yeah like, well, in, in the book, it's, um, it's... Crookshanks. Well, Sirius gets, goes in there and it hits it, but, yeah, then it's Crookshanks, because there's, there, there's a whole big thing about how, in the... Uh, 
Oh, yeah, Cookshanks is hanging out with uh, Panther. Yeah, and, yeah and he is. And they never really Cookshanks. explain in the movie why Crookshanks is even after uh, Scabbers in the first place. I no. mean, they, they just leave it at, oh, it's a cat, you know, going after a rat. There's a whole uh, other they, explanation for that that they kind of cut out. There's a sneaker scope in there as well. Mm-hmm. I, I have particular love for Crookshanks because um, Sharon and I, uh, for what? 10, 11 years, owned this big, fluffy ginger tom named uh, Jesse. Sharon for even longer, because she had him before she met me. And he looked like a more handsome version, without the squashed face, of Crookshanks. <laughs> so uh, I've always had a very soft spot for that cat. I never suspected him of being anything other than virtuous. And I figured out pretty early on that uh, black did not mean Harry, Harry any harm. Mm-hmm. Um, purely by virtue of the fact that Crookshanks seemed like a good egg. It's not exactly a Death Eater, but I thought of a really dislikable character who, who does manage a Patronus. I mean, way beyond Snape as well. Five points to any... Five points to Gryffindor if you get it. I take it I'm not allowed to answer this one. Yeah, I know, you're Ravenclaw. Of course, Sharon, you aren't allowed to answer it. Or indeed Ravenclaw for Leah. A dislikable character that proves... Oh, um, what's her face? The... Dolores Umbridge. Dolores Umbridge. She's using one as defense when she's uh, interrogating Ron's wife, in quotes, uh, in uh, film seven. It's just a cat. It's sitting there. It's keeping the Dementors at bay. I think there's a difference between her and Death Eaters. Death Eaters are knowingly malicious, knowing that everything they do is, as much as they think is right, they know that is wrong with the way that the rest of the world sees it. Whereas Umbridge is very much, everything I'm doing is right, is for the greater good, is not evil at all. There's not, there's not a, not even a hint that she thinks what she's doing is evil at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she, but she is ridiculously self-righteous. That's one yeah. of the things that Joe Rowling absolutely loathes: self-righteousness, as is Voldemort. The words you were looking for were sociopath. Yeah, <laughs> sociopath. She, uh, Dolores Umbridge. I remember when I'm reading Phoenix, I was going, "She is worse than Voldemort." At least Voldemort's honest about how evil he is. Mm. It's, yeah. it's the, deep down, you know, you deserve to be punished. Oh, I could strangle that woman. Yeah, but at least we got the fantastic moment with the twins in that book. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It is so, you know, it's so delightful that Potter instantly thinks it's his father doing the Patronus stack. To see him move from that and finding power within himself, finally recognizing that it is him, that he was the, the wizard behind this Patronus. Uh, that that he is capable of great things because through the first and second films and through through part of this f- third film, he is a a boy wizard with so much self doubt, self loathing, and uh, this is this is one of those instances where he really uh, understands that he is his father's and mother's son, and he carries those things with him and is self empowered. In becoming a he does, obviously doesn't become an adult, but he's taking steps to, towards becoming a man because in this film he gets fathered in a way that he never has before. Lupin steps in and he gets the mentor that he's never had as he was growing up. Sirius steps in at the end and he gets the offer of a home that he never had when he was growing up. And in that moment when he sees the stag, um, or the, the Patronus coming towards him, he's getting the protection that a father would have given him that he, he felt he never had when he was growing up. So from the, from those three friends who were 
so integral to each other when they were at school, so close to each other. Harry is getting the, the fatherly input that he's missed out on in his early years. Um, and I know we, we talked about the early years of, of mothering and, and that kind of parental care in the last one. But I think that is a very essential part for a, a boy psychologically maturing is having that feeling that he's been properly fathered, that he's been taught properly and protected properly and that it's safe for him to go forward and and become the man himself. doesn't turn up in any other film. It only turns up in the trailer for Goblet of Fire, but it's so integral to this film. It is Lupin's song. Lupin is the window to Harry's past. Even when he, Harry's using his Patronus at the end, he wouldn't be able to do that without Lupin, and without Lupin shedding light on his past. There's a scene when they're on the bridge talking, and uh, Lupin sows the seeds of how important Harry's mother is going to be, how important Lily is going to be to the, to the overall story. Professor, can I ask you something? You want to know why I stopped you facing that boggart? Yes? I would have thought it would be obvious. I assumed it would take the shape of Lord Voldemort. I did think of Voldemort at first, but then I remembered that night on the train and the Dementor. Well, I'm very impressed. That suggests that what you fear the most is fear itself. This is very wise. Before I fainted, I heard something. A woman. Screaming. Well, Dementors force us to relive our very worst memories. Our pain becomes their power. I think it was my mother. The night she was murdered. You know, the very first time I saw you, Harry, I recognized you immediately. Not by your scar, by your eyes. They're your mother, Lily's. Yes. Oh, yes. I knew her. Your mother was there for me at a time when no one else was. Not only was she a singularly gifted witch, she was also an uncommonly kind woman. She had a way of seeing the beauty in others, even and perhaps... Most especially when that person could not see it in themselves. And your father, James, on the other hand, he, uh, <laughs> he had a certain, shall we say, talent for trouble. A talent, rumor has it, he passed on to you. You're more like them than you know, Harry. 
time you'll come to see just how much. I don't know if that was written by Steve Clover's uh, as part of the script and wasn't in the, the book at all, but right there he's talking about Lily and Snape. Mm-hmm. And he's also talking about Lily and Lupin, but inadvertently he is talking about what drives the Lily side of the plot. But then over the next few films you get to find out that James maybe wasn't the nicest guy in the world. So when Snape says to uh, Harry that... What are you doing wandering the corridors at night? I'm sleepwalking. How extraordinarily like your father you are, Potter. He too was exceedingly arrogant, strutting about the castle. My dad didn't strut, and nor do I. Harry has no idea what he's talking about. James did strut, and Snape was there to see it. And it's just it's the seeds of maybe your father wasn't so hot, but your mother... Very, very important into your disposition. One of the many reasons, like that, Snape hate uh, Snape hates James Potter was obviously because he was a bully and so forth. But the reason he hates him the most was because James saved his life. Sirius tricked him into going to the Whomping Willow, yeah, where Lupin attacked him while in werewolf form, and it was James Potter that, you know, as a stag that saved Snape. And Snape Snape has always had that kind of grudge that I got saved by this guy. And that's one, and then that, and that at the time was one of the reasons that you know that that was um, given as one of the reasons why he hates Harry. But obviously, yeah. we, don't, we now know he doesn't hate Harry. But it's one of the reasons why he made Harry's life a hell. It gives so much character, and it, go, it, it builds on that whole idea of that there's so much that's happened before, and it's not all about Harry. Today, while we were watching it with Lyra, she actually missed a little bit when the werewolf came, you know, jumping towards Harry, Hermione, and Ron. And I had to wind it back and go, look, see, Snape. He's getting in between them. He's saying, don't touch them, don't hurt them. And he's actually doing exactly what Lily did. Mm. He is sacrificing himself for the kids. Even if it's a meaningless sacrifice, even if the werewolf kills him and then kills the children, it's his first instinct. And I said to Lyra, so is Snape nice or nasty? And she went, um, nice. Nasty. (laughs) So, yeah, she's pretty much got a head around it. I am stopping, by the way, at Goblet. Once she's seen Goblet, she's not going to see any more until I get to read each book to her. Absolutely, and that is the way it should be. Yeah. And it works very well, actually, like that. As a divide, young kids could probably see it up to the point where Cedric dies and then suddenly the gloves are off. I mean, I would even dispute that young kids should even be able to see Azkaban or even Chamber. Lyra is somewhat fascinated by her fears, and she loves the Harry Potter films now. You never find out that it's Snape who's making the potion that keeps Lupin under control. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you barely course. find out about the potion at all. It's a, it, they do make one comment. They say uh, it's when when he's I think it's when he's starting to transform. They say, "Oh, did you take your potion, or you forgot your potion, or something like that?" Yeah, but, Sirius says that to him. Yeah, and, and you never find out that Snape has been making this potion, which ties into the fact that you never really know why Snape follows them down into the Whomping Willow in the first place. Because in the book, it's he takes. Lupin has forgotten his his uh, potion, so Snape takes it to his office, finds out he's not there, finds the map, and finds out where they've gone. You never get any of that in the film. He just kind of wanders into the Whomping Willow and finds out, oh, look, this has all happened already. Hang on, sorry, he finds the map. Does he go, I solemnly swear I am up to no good? The map. Um, does he find the map? I don't I think he does find the map. I just don't think Lupin's cleared it. Maybe, uh-huh. yeah, that's it. Because he finds uh, uh, the Mister go, oh, oh, and they just run off as soon as. And he then he finds the invisibility cloak at the base of the tree. So I mean, there's a whole series of things that kind of stems off of that 
bit about never actually knowing that he was the one making the potion in the first place. How does one find an invisibility cloak? <laughs> With great difficulty. You slide your foot under it and go, oh, my foot's disappeared. Yes. Snape's actions in this film are a little bit difficult to really fathom, especially if you know that the writer and the director didn't know what was going to happen. They also were cutting out large amounts of stuff, which is contributory to why Snape does what he does. And Alan Rickman did know why he was doing what he was doing. So it's, there's a lot of confusion going on. Why does Snape teach the kids about werewolves to make them deliberately suspicious? I've always assumed that it was to see if someone works out what Lupin is, because he doesn't like Lupin being there. Because as much as he's yeah. trying to protect Harry and all that, he still holds the grudge against Lupin, because Lupin was one of the crew that bullied him. So now he's getting his own back. Like, not j- just to get him sacked, not to get him in trouble or put in Azkaban or anything like that, just to get him sacked and say, get out of my school. You're in the person that, that one of the people that made my life hell at school is doing the job I want and have wanted for years. Yeah despite the fact that he's got this massive thing that should not make him a teacher. You know, well, Lupin like, mentions that in the shack, doesn't he? I know he does in the book, and I'm pretty sure he does in the film as well. He I says, oh, not. well, how did you figure it out? Did you fi-? and, and Hermione says, because Professor Snape yeah. said, you know, made us do that. Uh, the whole thing, I goes, oh, yeah, basically, that, that should have been it. Interestingly enough, do you know why the, uh, the, everyone only ever manages to spend a year as defense against the dark arts teacher? Because they keep on dying or... Get sacked. The curse. No, that's what happens to them. The curse. Yeah. Anyone want to say what was the curse? What was the curse? It was. It was it's something like I cannot remember off the top of my head, but isn't it something like anyone who actually takes the job is uh, cursed to only have it for a year or something? That is the curse. But do you know who put it on the job? I thought that was just something the kids said. I didn't think there was an actual curse. Nope. It is an actual curse. Was it by Voldemort when he didn't get the job? Yep. As I said to you on Twitter the other day, I, I sent James like 82 tweets about what Horcru- which Horcrux is for which. Yeah, an email would have done. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know it was going to be that long when I started. I just wanted to update you Did you, you not on the think whole... by like the fifth or sixth method- message that you could have just sent one saying, by the way, I'll send I you I was on email. a roll. Tell me that that wasn't bleeping on your phone all the time. I, no, that woke me up. Oh, balls. <laughs> right. Okay. Anyway, as I said... Um, Tom Riddle came back to Hogwarts about five, six years after he'd uh, left naturally and graduated and asked to be... Uh, he, uh, he, he asked as soon as he left, can I be Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher? They said he was too young. He came back several years later, said, can I be Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher? Now they had a new headmaster, Albus Dumbledore, who had always been suspicious of Tom after Warhouse. Dumbledore said no. Uh, Voldemort asked him why. He didn't like the answer he got. Voldemort cursed the role. And since then, for what? Like 40-odd years, they've had 40-odd Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers. Wow. You know, you think if you were like 36 or 37 there, you'd just go, you know, I don't even think I really want to go into this. <laughs> but you'd understand. I mean, Snape's been there since, in the book continuity, since 1981. He's been there for 13 years. He's seen 13 Dada teachers come and go. Why just? Why not just go? I probably couldn't do this all that well. It's I don't want an anvil falling on me or to contract a terrible flesh-eating virus. It's a shame they See, never really address the whole um, the fact that Snape wants that job so badly. They do in the books. In the books, they constantly reference it in all of them. The only one where they really focus out on the film is one of the comical moments from the fifth fifth film. Umbridge doing her uh, Ofsted style inspection. It's like, you applied for this uh, position 13 times? Ah, uh, yes. yes. And was turned down how many times? Uh, no, 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 no. And you were unsuccessful? 
obviously. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just assumed that all the the uh, these professors of dark arts went on to uh, careers as drummers for Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. So, so you've seen Snape um, watch these people come and go. You'd wonder why a Snape doesn't just give up, and b why no one says, "Should we counter curse this?" There's got to be a way. If it's a, if just change the role. Advanced defense against the dark arts. Basic training. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or something. I mean, you know, if, if that's the case, just work around the red tape. couple of little things I picked up on while watching the film. Aunt Marge says, if it had been me, I'd have had him straight in an orphanage, referring to Harry, uh, and uh, if, if Harry had been put on her doorstep, which would make a Tom riddle. Uh, Sharon noticed this one. Hermione wears a lot of horizontal stripes in these movies. Why? I have an idea, but I don't want to say it because it sounds crass. <laughs> So, no, 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 you're right. You're probably you're right. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, yeah that, this... that was kind of my thought too. <laughs> to make her Great. boobs look bigger. Uh, no, <laughs> it's, it's to make them look smaller. If you're wearing horizontal oh, okay. stripes, they're quite a they're quite a young girl thing to wear anyway. Um, but if you're wearing horizontal stripes, everybody will assume that any curvature they notice is to do with the stripes and not to do with what's under the stripes. I always get confused between vertical and horizontal and what they do. So. <laughs> I'd just like to know why James is looking in that particular I'm area. not looking. I'm not looking. They're there. Kids being kids. This is the first time we genuinely get to see the kids actually being like kids, not Enid Blyton kids like current modern day contemporary kids, when they're messing about with those animal suites in the bedroom. Did you know Ron's wearing a funny hat with, with pigtails attached to it? They're wearing pyjamas, they're hanging out, and th- it just seems like a genuine laugh and a conversation between friends who haven't seen each other in a long while. And that is this, this from now on, the films are filled with moments like that. Right. Well, and, and the only time they wear the uniforms are when they're in class, and, yeah. uh, in, in the DV, in the notes on the DVD, uh, you know, Kuran even, uh, told the, the, uh, actors saying, look, how would you just normally wear this? You know, so so you see differences on how they wear their robes and whatnot. You know, so you, some have their tie proper, proper, some have it uh, shanked to the left, or you know, and, you know. Yeah. So there's all varying degrees, you know, to make it that make it feel just natural. Interestingly, it still stands to reason. For the first two years at big school, you do toe the line. You do, unless you're a particularly rebellious kid, you make sure that your shoes are shiny, your tie is straight. And you're always tucked in. And, uh, by the time you get to about 13, you're like, I could probably just, I'm just going to untuck it for this lesson and see if anyone, uh, mm. if anyone knows. How notices. short then, can I get this skirt before I get told off? <laughs> and, and how ridiculously short can I make the long bit of my tie? And how long can I make the short <laughs> bit of my tie before anyone points it out? And, and yeah, it's a, the, they look like scruffy 
you know, on the whole, scruffy school kids. And that sells the world so well. What's this rubbish? <laughs> What's this rubbish, she says. That there is the secret to our success. It's a wrench giving it to you, believe me. But we've decided your needs are greater than ours. George, if you will. I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Messrs Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs are proud to present the Marauder's Map. We own so much. Is that really... Dumbledore. Any study. Pacing. There's that a lot. So you mean this map shows... Everyone. Everyone? Everyone. Where they are, what they're doing, every minute of every day. Brilliant. For some reason, and this maintains throughout the rest of the series, they weren't before, but the twins, Fred and George, become the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> They've got the same dry delivery, and they go back and forth extremely fast. And, and, and some, they, they got a bit more of an accent suddenly. And they're a little bit deeper in voice. And they're very, very assured. And they have that same kind of back, 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 back as the Beatles in Hard Day's Night on Yellow Submarine, even though it wasn't the Beatles in Yellow Submarine. Um, I, I don't know why, but it, I think it really, really works for their characters. It really works in the sense of, of building them as a pair. Um, the, over the, the next few films, you really start to get this feeling of them being inseparable and them always, uh, finishing each of the sentences and that kind of thing, which when unhappy events start to occur, um, it, it makes them heavier, I think, because of that. Poor Fred. No, poor George. <laughs> Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living. Okay, so, Crab but not Goyle. Anybody else notice that for some reason Goyle turns up for like two minutes and then leaves and Crab and Malfoy and some other kid who looks like a shaved ape hang around for most of the film? It's like there's a Goyle deficiency. Wasn't in this because, um, whichever one it is, Crab or Goyle, like I always forget, Goyle, because both of them are in the film. Because mm. I believe, yeah, no, it, I believe it's in that, first, that first scene in the, I think it's in, in Hagrid's first class, isn't it? All three of them are there at Hagrid's class, and in the Great Hall at the very beginning, uh, around that double-double toil and trouble thing, you get to see uh, Goyle sitting with them. No offence to Shave Dape Kid, he played a, a shifty Slytherin very well. Absolutely. Great little lackey kid. But, uh, he was brilliant. But yeah. Henchman number three was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Shrieking Shack, because this is the integral moment in the film. There is a vast amount of exposition that needs to be given out. And to a lot of people, this was done fine. To a lot of people, this was done terribly. I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'm impressed that they managed to get so much information out, but it seems like they're like, oh God, this is like, this is like ten minutes worth of stuff. What if we said it at double speed, we can get it out in five minutes? And, it's, and they just went, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, the extra five minutes would have killed everyone. 
the way the conversation goes backwards and forwards in this scene is rather unsatisfactory. Yeah. Let, let me put it that way. Um, there are... Uh, they don't allow any time for anything to sink in. No. They, or they, acting. It's they just don't, shouted it's at just, each other. Yeah, it's just... Um, it, there's too much exposition for a start. The exposition that there is is done in such a contrived way Particularly when um, uh, Sirius and Lupin are, are, are on the, you know, this happened and then this happened. At no point does Sirius go to Harry, look, I'm just after the rat. He gives him all these little cryptic comments that could quite easily mean I'm about to take your head off. Only and, one person is going to die tonight. Yeah, even if you allow for the fact that he's been in Azkaban for 12 years and he's a bit you know, loose around the edges at the moment. Surely, this is his chance to see and speak to Harry for the first time. Yeah. It, there'd be there'd be some point where he'd go, "Look, I'm not going to hurt you." E- even that, even he just never that, actually says, "I'm not going to hurt you." Those words never get said. No, no, and they need to be said really yeah. quite early on in the conversation. And you I could think. almost pass this all off and say that Sirius is not a people person. He's been in jail for twelve years, surrounded by demons. That's excusable. But Lupin comes in and then is, does this weird shifty starey eyes thing at Harry and goes, ah, when did you first find out about this? And it's like, Lupin, you are the one person who can prevent utter calamity at this point. Why are you acting like someone in 24 mm. yes. when you just find out that they're all shifty? There is, there is very much a feeling that they are trying to artificially extend the tension in the scene, and it, it does... Which doesn't fit when they assume you've read all this stuff and know all this stuff. They're like, look, it's just information, okay? We'll just chuck it out there. You all know how it went. Peter Pettigrew did it, right? Okay, but it doesn't make any sense. If they're trying, you're going to have to choose one or the other. Do you want to go with suspense or exposition? (laughs) Yeah, indeed. You can't have both. But the one person who does carry off what he's got to say in this is Snape. And again, I think this comes back to um, what we've said about Alan Rickman knowing more about the motivation of his character mm. um, than even his directors have done. Um, because And indeed, writers. Yes. But w- well, uh, not Joe, but uh, Steve. The, oh, the screenwriter, yeah. yeah. But when he comes in and he goes for Sirius, the way he plays that, Again, it could it could simply be the, you know, I hate you, and, and obviously he's got this with Lupin as well, I hate you because you were this person who picked on me at school, um, and you, you're aware to this point that he bears no particular love for Harry's father, so, you know, there's no, no reason for him to be... Um, to be acting in, in particular defense of anything from that perspective. But when he grabs hold of Sirius and he's got the one to his throat... In retrospect, you're looking at him and you can see on his face that he has now got hold of the person who is, as far as he's concerned, was responsible for Lily Potter's death. And that, I think, comes across in the way Snape plays that particular scene. And I think he's the only person in that whole scene who manages to carry it genuinely and and really give a sense of what the character is feeling rather than simply shouting random exposition. And yeah, so they, 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 they come in, they act all shifty, Lupin and Sirius both fail to say, look, Harry, you can relax. We are not here to hurt you or kill you in any way. We, in fact, want to protect you. However, there is a traitor in our midst. It's Ron's rat. They don't say that because, and you could say, well, it's a very dramatic moment, but they actually, the way it's written, they go out of their way to withhold lines which would just 
dissipate that tension with the kids. And the kids just stare at them bewildered, and at no point do they think... I mean, again, with Sirius, yeah, he's been in jail. Lupin's a teacher. Lupin's a really, really great teacher. He knows kids. It makes no sense that he would talk like this. And then when Wormtail turns up, anyone notice the fact that he has magic clothes? Yes. Yeah, that yes. really bothered me. <laughs> turns up in a suit, and then when he turns himself back into a rat, just deflates inside the suit and then runs away. Leaving so, the suit on the hill. So when he turns back into a human with Voldemort, I'm assuming he generates another suit. And as well, when Sirius is a dog, he, he fights with uh, Lupin and then staggers to the side of the water, exhausted and, you know, bleeding, and falls unconscious, turns back into a human with magic clothes! Well, I need to be... To be children fair, don't want to see any, Gary Oldman's penis. I know. If any movie is going to have magic clothes, exactly. it should probably be these. But... Uh, but because when Sirius turns from Padfoot back into himself at the is it at the train station in uh, in, in Phoenix yeah he yeah, he, he, has, he had has a, a dressing gown a dressing gown or something on because he did not wearing any clothes yeah no he keeps like he keeps a dressing gown it's been secreted there for him to put on mm. that's that's going back to the books and going actually no he wouldn't have clothes does, he, does like, he do a Saint Bernard thing where he has like clothes rolled up in something tied around his neck or something like that. In the books, Leah? Uh, no, I don't believe you so. Are. I, I'm <laughs> just making that up. <laughs> and Neil, anything? No, I don't. No, I don't think so. I, I, it's sense. more just the. Con- it's like in this world, you really could buy that. Yes, so we can change into. Actually, McGonagall does it as well. Le- yeah, earlier, cat. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, she transfigures into a cat in the first one, <laughs> and. Her clothes transfigure with her. Twice. Well, can you imagine that? Glass. Transfigures in front of a classroom full of kids. And her clothes fall off instantly. So. <laughs> I've seen, seen everything. Oh, God. Yeah, okay, so basically transfiguration, physics and rules go out the window at this point. But it's almost like, surely they ran that one past Joe. And Joe would have had well, to have said... They don't mention it in the book. It's not... Yeah, well, no, because Peter Pettigrew is naked, but for, I think they put a sheet on him or something. Now, the only reason that it is excusable is because his costume is so spot on to show what a wormy, scruffy, horrible, ratty little git he is. And so you're like, okay, you know what? The suit? Yeah, we'll forgive that. And obviously the whole, um, when, when Sirius comes back to being uh, alive, putting him back in prison fatigues makes perfect sense. He's back to being a prisoner. So in this case, the clothes maketh the man. But it's still bloody annoying. In defense of the uh, favoring suspense over exposition, yep. uh, I, I, I liked it because uh, it, it sort of puts the the viewer in in Harry's shoes, so to speak. And mm. up to this point, he still doesn't have a firm grasp. If, if you're simply watching from the movies, what the movie gives you, yeah. you know. And I think if we're going to review, if we're going to talk about the film, let's talk about the film. And, uh, and at certain lengths, uh, uh, we have to respect what the, what, what the directors and, and, and the crew is, is doing. And, you know, so we're, as a viewer, simply not taking extraneous stuff that we've learned from the book, uh, we don't have all the facts yet. And this is, this is the time where things are pieced together. And, uh, but the, the danger still exists. So simply from a fact, Harry and his friends still haven't figured out 
what is happening. Uh, they saw, you know, Harry saw Pettigrew on the map, but he didn't see Pettigrew as, as the rat. Uh, so, um, he's still unsure of who the danger is. And, and, uh, and simply by watching the movie, all he knows is Sirius, uh, is not only presents a danger to himself, but he is a person that even Harry wants to kill. And I, I like that there was that suspense and that sense of danger. Um, and the, and even the, 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 uh, when you think things are safe, um, things are not from, from Harry's perspective with, with Lupin, uh, uh, in, in bed <laughs> figuratively, uh, with, with, uh, Sirius. Yeah. That's actually, um, just, Something uh, off of what you just mentioned, Chris, in in the book, and this is another change that is is interesting because uh, I'm curious as to maybe why. Well, I, I can guess as to why they did it, but in the book, Harry doesn't see Pettigrew on the map. It's Lupin who originally sees him. Uh, Harry doesn't see him until Lupin points him out much later. I think it's in the shack. Ah, so they why is Harry wandering around in, out there? Was he doing something to do with potions? Isn't that, that when he's trying to get the fireball back? Yeah, it's either when he no. Which of course he hasn't been given yet. Well, in the in the, book, in the film, yeah. Fireball, yeah. In the books, yeah. I I don't. Oh no, I remember what it was. It's the first time he gets he uh, tries to go into Hogsmeade. It's not in the middle of the night when Snape finds him wandering around out there. It's when everybody else has already left, and he's out in the hallway, and I think Neville is as well. And he kind of tricks Neville into going back and starts to leave. Snape catches up with him and forces him to turn his pockets out. That's what it was. Okay, right, to address your points, Chris, I completely and utterly respect the filmmakers. They're fantastic. They have done a brilliant job over a decade. But that still doesn't change the fact that if you watch this film twice, having never read the book, you would wonder to yourself, why don't they just say, we don't mean you any harm, Harry? Nothing to do with, with, you know, what's not said. It's to do with how it's said. What I really thought would have been a great moment at that stage... Because when you're reading it, you get this effectively, it gets described to you, would have been a flashback. Just some shots of a young Sirius confronting a young Peter and have it earlier in the film basically from one perspective and then later in the film from the other perspective from behind Peter and show the street blowing up because he's uh, using his wand to blow it up and to show the finger being left and the rat skulking away and for you to go, you, like it's, don't say it, show it. And Alfonso Cuaron is fantastic at visual storytelling. And maybe it would be expensive. Maybe they just didn't have time. Maybe it was a bit gory for that particular movie. I, there's, there will put have been ways of, of yeah. like, just doing, a, like, a smoking finger afterwards or something like that. There, there, there are ways to frame it so that it's not too upsetting. I mean, it was, it was a PG, but you could have done that Remember, just to actually is, show what, what they were shouting about. Really. This is a film in which they imply that... A, a beloved animal has just had its head cut off. Oh yeah, poor Buckbeak. So they're they're not shy about implying quite horrible things that would be quite Without traumatic to kids. Yeah. Although interestingly, when we saw it the first time recently, and uh, McNair goes mental oh. in the uh, pumpkin patch, uh, Lyra oh. said quietly, having no idea what had actually just gone on, because she couldn't even uh, she didn't even see the implication that it was Buckbeak. He just cut a pumpkin in two, <laughs> and and he did. <laughs> I completely agree. The, the technical achievements on, in this film are fantastic. And it's such a jump up from the first two that I was I was actually a little bit sort of off the series at this point before I saw it. I was like, ooh, Crowan's directing. That's cool, because I'd seen E2 Mamma Tambian. Um, 
And see, when I saw the first movie, I bought myself a Hogwarts T-shirt, and I sold it after seeing the second movie because I was like, these films are not going to get better. And I've got Lord of the Rings now. If I'd known and if I'd waited, I'd have kept that Hogwarts T-shirt because it was badass. It had like a, a raised Hogwarts logo. Oh, so cool. It was from the Warner Brothers store, official. If anyone ever finds one, do point it out to me because I want to buy another. I have one that says Ravenclaw Quidditch Captain, and that's that's like one of my favorite shirts. <laughs> I would understand why as well. <laughs> Every time it sort of shows a sort of external shot of the castle and it's like, oh, Black's out there, he's stalking you, uh-oh, and they play some sort of sinister music, it shows the Dementors. And the Dementors sort of fly around and they freeze flowers and they are extremely scary. And you think to yourself, oh yeah, and the Dementors too. And then when you watch it a second time and you know the Black is not a threat, it makes perfect sense that all of those threatening shots are just the Dementors. That's a really nice little sort of, you know, once you see it the second time situation and you realize that the shadow and the threat has already been introduced okay any more before we go to time travel oh no pig widgeon ever <laughs> it is no, you're right so That's sad true. Pig but, but there's like no, there's no uh, peeves there's no great squid so giant squid so there is no giant squid why did i not notice this I always, I was waiting for them to show the giant squid. It never happened. I can imagine almost an Aquity and Hunger Force-style oh. meeting of the characters that were written out of the Harry Potter films. Specifically on this film as well, no Circa Duggan. Yeah, no, he's in the deleted yeah. scenes. He's delete- in the deleted scenes, played by Paul Whitehouse. And not oh, as, he? of course. And not as well as I expected him to be. Like, maybe, again, if you go back to last week, like, my mum read out all of the books to us the first time we read them, and her portrayal of Circa Duggan was... Again, almost this kind of very flash hearty, come on, let's go, hey! <laughs> Strange enough, that reminds me because it wasn't Rick Mayo meant to be Peeves. He yes. was, yes. We did, uh, we did cover this. We did, briefly. But uh, yeah, poor, poor Rick Mayo. Could have been, could have been Peeves, could have been Gilderoy, ended up being nobody. <laughs> okay. Um, no, 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 Gilderoy had to be. Yeah, no, James said it would have been over the top, and he's absolutely right. Brown played him spot on. Hmm. Okay. Interestingly, Branagh was uh, on the cards to possibly direct his third film. Was he? It, has Branagh ever done a film with his ex-wife? Because we have Trelawney Tr- in here. Oh, of course, yeah, no. We haven't even talked about Trelawney. He was in Dead Again, which was rubbish, and Peter's Friends, which was fantastic, um, with uh, Emma Thompson. Yeah, I can't believe we were not going to talk about Trelawney. Okay. Emma Thompson well, she's is not really in it that much. a superb actress. Trelawney is, is weird. She's like the flip side of Lockhart because she believes the rubbish that she's shoveling. And, and she has actually been right once, and that's the whole point of her character. There's not really much to say about her. You're absolutely right. There she's is, she's a, a hack. There is one thing about... An unwitting hack. There's one thing about Trelawney that wasn't in the film that I missed, and it's not even a technical... It's not even a Trelawney thing. Technically, in the book, they go to their first lesson, and she goes, oh, you have the grim, the grim. And they go to, the next lesson is uh, Transfiguration with Professor McGonagall, and they're all depressed. And 
Mm -hmm. McGonagall can't work out why or what's wrong with them. She's trying to liven them up a bit. And she's like, what lessons have you you just come from? And they say divination. And one of my favourite lines in the book, okay, which one of you is going to die you this year? (laughs) (laughs) And he's just, I absolutely Oh, that would have been great if Maggie Smith could have said that. She goes off on Trelawney a few times in the book. Mm. They just miss it, and it's it's all these asides like, oh, really? And and so uh, have have your have your kids died yet? You know, she, it's just like these really snippy little comments coming nice. from. Great. That makes it even more heartfelt when she is the one who defends her in in Phoenix mm. when she stands up to Umbridge, putting her job in jeopardy, and does that little step stairs dance with her in the film. Mm. And then yeah, she stands up for Trelawney when uh, when she gets sacked. Okay, so yeah, there's. There's that, and uh, yeah, Emma Thompson probably could have done with a character who was a bit less mad. Uh, she does surely very, very well, but uh, it would have been nice to see her do a more dramatic character um, and less of a, effectively a comedy one. But I can't think who else I would have put Emma. Th- Emma Thompson, I'm glad she's got a part in the saga, and I can't yeah. think who else I would have put her as. It's so. difficult to say. Um, She'd have been a great Mrs. Weasley if they hadn't got um, yes, yes, she would. Julie Walters. Although Julie Waters will always be the perfect Mrs. Yes, even, even like even in this one, the um, the scene in the, in the you know the shot that we were talking about earlier in the in the Leaky Cauldron where she comes down and she's straight to Harry's like, "Have you got all of your things and all of your clothes?" She's like, <laughs> she's properly motherly, and I just I love her. That's like one of her only lines in this entire film, and I love her for it. It's brilliant. Uh, it's also one of the few chances you actually get to see the entire assembled Weasley family. Mm. Different actors for Bill and Charlie, but um, it's it's all of them very very briefly for a second. I thought they the sort project. of didn't do one of the older brothers at all, or am I wrong? No, Charlie's mentioned, it. he doesn't appear. Charlie's mentioned, but he, he's not in um, uh, either Goblet or Philosopher's Stone when he should be. They could have brought him in with Goblet, just had a ginger guy in the background helping with the dragons, but uh, but no, the only time he ever appears in the entire um, octology is uh, is in this photo. Okay, let's see. How many hours have we done so far? Uh, one hour fifty-eight. I think, I think time for time point. travel. I think we, uh, get we need to measure this podcast in days. Yeah, <laughs> time travel. How uh, can we do this quickly? I only have Let one thing go. to say about time travel. <laughs> okay, right, uh, Leah. Say your one thing about time travel. My one thing about time travel is that there is no way Hermione could have done that without becoming completely insane by the end of the first week. Agreed. <laughs> She would have you no guys can talk about the rest of it. I just wanted to say that that is completely impossible for Hermione to keep her sanity, even as yeah. much as she does. I, I mean, Hermione is clever in this, but if the time travel thing must mean she's some sort of super genius or it's something. It's physically impossible. If you're adding that many hours to a day and you're not adding any sleep, any more time to eat, any more time to do anything, I mean, your body physically can't take that. It also makes no sense that no one would rumble her. At no point does... I mean, I'm sure in the book Harry talks to someone who's like, that's strange because she was in my lesson as well. But there's no investigation by Harry and Ron to say, right, Hermione, have you got some weird double or something? What is going on? Yeah, that's what, the point. If, how does she get through an entire year? With nobody pointing <laughs> this one out. My, I, I, think she, I think she must have gone a little bit mad because she loses the time turner. As far as I'm aware, she doesn't use the time turner in any of the other years. 
Oh, no, no. It gets, she gives it back to uh, Dumbledore, and uh, interestingly enough, all the other time-turners are destroyed, including that one, which means that, that everything tragic that happens in later books cannot be undone. <laughs> I just can't... The narrative contrivance. Because they... I mean, she goes through this whole thing about how McGonagall gave it to her, and she had to go through all of these... She had to write a bunch of letters and get a bunch of permission. I'm like, what teacher is going to do this to a 13-year-old? It seems like... how a... good a student she is. You're going to mess her up. It seems like an extended, um, weird way of getting a kid who's got too much on their plate to accept that they have limitations. That's but exactly what I was about to say, that, that possibly the only way they could put Hermione off insisting that she be allowed to take every class going is to give her the opportunity to try it and go, you know what? I'm going to cut some of my subjects this year. But that, that she could create a major paradox. Oh, you want a drink? Here, sit down and drink this entire bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Smoke right. this entire carton of 50 exactly. cigarettes. Yes. Okay, I, I think I, I think well not only because it's you know important to the plot, but uh, but I I think it speaks to uh, who Harmony uh, Hermione. is. Hermione. I'm sorry, I'm butchering things today. So uh, who she is as a person. I mean, here you have she's she's comes from mudblood but yet she's the character that is most interested and proficient in magic and and to show her so interesting in taking all these classes uh speaks to uh, her motivations you know she doesn't she doesn't have a tiger mother trying to push her it's it's internal stuff you know and uh i, I, I you know it's a minor thing but uh, but i find it interesting um and from a technical aspect uh, I I liked how uh, Kuran handled you know her just suddenly showing up in, in classes you know yeah. and Ron's reaction every single time I thought it was warm and funny you know didn't rely on on cheap you know poof you know that sort of stuff um, and uh, it just felt it felt natural. Agree completely. I'm, I'm certainly not saying I'm not finding it interesting. I don't even think it's it's stretching the realms of uh, believability that Hermione wouldn't undertake this task. I'm just amazed that she didn't go mental or create a major paradox. Because I think the thing I theorise with Sharon, this isn't exactly the same as Back to the Future, uh, One River Time. Um, neither is it the same as Donnie Darko. Uh, parallel universe time everything that Hermione does has happened and will happen and will always happen it's not that she they go through the first run with Buckbeak and then they go back and alter things they go back and do things that enable that timeline to continue it's two threads of fate held parallel to each other they throw the stone and they were always going to throw that stone Exactly why I love the time travel section in this film. My favorite, I'm a time travel nut, and my favorite form of time travel is the has happened, will always happen, will have always been. There's a red dwarf line that R- Rimmer has. Has happened, will happen, will always have going to be <laughs> It will have been something That's that will possibly have happened in the future. Your right. bucket's been kicked. Okay. I just, I love the way that they have fun, have so much more fun with it. In the book, and I meant to go back and read this, and I didn't have time, um, but I, because I was watching films and listening to podcasts and so forth. In the book, as far as I'm aware, and Leo, you'll probably correct me, all they do is they go back, as and when um, people are distracted, they rescue Buckby, and then they wait. And there's no stone throwing, there's no... Oh, in the book, I think he does mention about wanting to go in... Uh, I think there's a moment... I think when they see themselves going... their past selves going into the... Um, uh, the tunnel to the Shrieking Shrek. I think Harry wants to go and grab the yeah, the, that, yeah, the but they never, cloak. But, but he, they never actually him. interact. There's no there's no connections between the two 
apart from rescuing Buckbeak and then rescuing um, Sirius. There's no stones being thrown. There's no reason to know that there is another copy of them out there. And I love the way it's just so beautifully directed and so like because when you watch it back, knowing what has happened and knowing where that stone comes from, and again watching Dumbledore and knowing that he's distracting them. You just you just get this great sense of yes, this has always happened. This will always have happened. This is always the way it was going to happen. And they're just part, you know, filling the same time loop. And I absolutely love it. If it weren't for the emissions, this is the this is why this film is a strong contender for my favourite entry in the series. When we watched it today, Sharon, you said, "Why didn't she just go back in time, tell Professor Lupin to take his damn potion?" Mm. And um, I, I worked out that. If it is everything that was and is going to be actually gets carried out, they can't alter anything. No. As Hermione says, terrible things happen to wizards who do that. My theory is, if you alter something, you disappear. She would have gone back in time, told Professor Lupin to uh, take his potion, and then the very cause for her to go back and tell him that would have created a paradox, and she would have just been erased from the timeline, so that the timeline would have played out as normal, terrible things would have happened, Harry and uh, Amani would have ended up in the, in the hospital wing, and then they would have disappeared and just stayed disappeared. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I, I'm still, I'm still of the mind that if, to stop a terrible paradox. I'm still of the mind that in that sort of situation, there's just as much as we've all got free will, it is it is physically impossible to change that, to change something. I like the idea that that kind of you, it is impossible, and time would find a way of preventing you from going back and actually getting to Lupin. So, like, if she went back and tried to warn Lupin, various things would have got in her way mm. that she wouldn't been able to get to Lupin. Thus rendering yes. it impossible. An entire it's... marching band. <laughs> <laughs> it seems unseasonable for Hogwarts, but it, yeah, it, it, here it is. It is. It is impossible. It is impossible to change things. Also, the fact that she has to get back to the place she started at the time she left that point, so that it's it's almost seamless. Yeah. Obviously, Ron has the. Hang on, you were over there, and now you're over there, but. It, they almost meet themselves coming back, if you see what I mean. And she's she's quite intent that they get there. There's that urgency when she hears the clock striking, and she's like, "Quick, yeah. we've got to move. We've, you know, we've got to get back to that place." And God bless Lyra. Imagine a three-year-old trying to get her head around the concepts in this film. <laughs> she went, "That's the other Harry and Hermione," and pointed at them. Um, it's and we we do keep referring to Hermione being the time traveller here. Harry is a passenger on this particular ride. Hermione is the pilot. She's been doing it all year. She knows what she's doing. She knows what the risks are. This time travel is important to Harry because he's lived the experience of the Dementors and, and the saving of, of Sirius. He almost missed it because he kept expecting his father to turn around. Yeah. Where he finally gets it and he says, oh, wait, that is me. And I think that's that's, you know, it's a very, very important for him to realize that. From the sounds of what you're saying then, Leah, the the kind of obsession with hearing his mother's voice and finding out more about this and the, like, it's going to be my father, it's going to be my father, despite the fact that this, this that, that makes no sense, is healed by the fact that he realises it's himself and that his, effectively, his internal father figure is within him. It's also, he's kind of, he's learning the lesson that he will not always win. First two years, he wins against Voldemort. A yep. child. Gryffindor the wins the cup twice. Yeah, Gryffindor wins the cup. This one, he doesn't win. You know, he's oh, all right. He knows that he's got a godfather now, but that godfather's on the run, and he can never admit to knowing that he has that godfather. Okay, he knows who who was ultimately responsible for his parents' death, but that person escaped. All right, and got he's, away because of him. Yeah. All right, he found Lupin um, as a friend and a mentor, but 
he has been going away. And he learns that things aren't, aren't in his control, even though he's got two attempts because he has the, you know, the initial run through the timeline and then the second run through the timeline when yeah. he's a passenger with Hermione. And both times there is nothing he can do. And he's kind of like, you know, you, you, you don't win them all, essentially. Yeah. And from now on, he really starts to lose yeah. as well. Yeah, from the next book onwards, it, the darkness starts to close in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really important that you 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 talk about winning and stuff. And I'm really going to go off the 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 deep end of, of film school and all this sort of stuff. Go for it. Yeah. Um, the thing I liked about this, okay, you know, the title, you know, Harry Potter and the Prisoner, the Prisoner of Azkaban. You know, in this movie, we have a lot of a lot of prisoners in, in a generic sense. You know, you you have uh, Sirius who who was the prisoner uh, of of uh, of Azkaban. Uh, you have Pettigrew, who is uh, a prisoner to being a rat for for uh, thirteen years. He's scared of not only uh, the incriminations of what uh, of the actions he's done, but also scared of the master he now has to serve because of those things. Uh, uh, you have Lupus, who's who's chained Lupin. to Lupin. Gosh, Lupus, Lupus Wolf. I'm sorry, Close Lupin, who is chained to his own DNA that that uh, ensnares him. Uh, Harry is himself a prisoner, uh, chained to the legacy that he has and the myth that has grown up around him. Um, still chained and, to the Dursleys. Exactly. Um, and, and here we see a difference between winning and freedom. And sometimes freedom doesn't mean you win. And I, I, I like that. You know, the, the bad guys do win. You know, Pettigrew gets away. L- Sirius is still being hunted. The, Lupin is still the outcast, you know, the other that, that people are scared of. And Harry still has Voldemort. But still there's a sense of freedom in, in all those parties. You go, I'll stay. You okay? Fine, go. Ow, that looks really painful. So painful. They, uh, they might chop it. Sure, Madame Pompey will fix it in a heartbeat. It's too late. It's ruined. It'll have to be chopped off. It's beautiful, isn't it? I'll never forget the first time I walked through those doors. It'll be nice to do it again as a free man. That was a noble thing you did back then. He doesn't deserve it. Well, I just didn't think my dad would have wanted his two best friends to become killers. Besides dead the truth dies with him alive you're free i don't know if you know harry but when you were born james and lily made me your godfather i know and, but i can understand if you choose to stay with your aunt and uncle but if you ever wanted a different home what? come and live with you that's just a thought I can understand if you don't want to. Shall we talk about differences from from the book? There's only going to be a few of these because obviously it's there, there are actually quite a few. I bullet pointed some some key bits, uh, and Leah, you can verify this if you want. Who was it? Was it you last week, James, who said you hated the fact that Harry was using Lumos under the covers? I did, and watching it today, it, it made me hate it even more. The fact that a he gets away with it and doesn't get pulled up on it. The fact that. He's saying it quite loudly, and Dursley doesn't... Tw- I know Dursley comes up and looks, but doesn't twig. Hang yeah. on. The whole magic language thing, 
I I like that. Yes, it's kind of mysterious and it sounds magical, but it's very very basic, and it's basically just re- replacing one word with another. <laughs> Lumos Magica lights maximum, please. <laughs> and and it this should be a scale, sure. <laughs> should you should be able to turn up the volume yeah. on your Lumos <laughs> Minima. It's like little tiny light. Lumos level five. Lumos level five. The other one that bothers me while I'm on the subject of ridiculous spells. Ridiculous. No, 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 no. My favourite is um. During the Quidditch match, Harry flies unnecessarily high into the sky above the Quidditch fair. I'm pretty sure that's out of bounds for even for Quidditch, how high he flies. <laughs> that's offside. Falls off it, yeah, exactly. Offside, <laughs> upside, any side. Um, falls off his broom, falls down, and Dumbledore, no one else in the stadium, Dumbledore stands up and says, Arresto momentum. What he actually means is, stop. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all that is. Arrest all my men. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start doing that next time. I'm, I'm trying to stop someone. You know, if, if I, I run a scout troop, if, if the kids are running towards a wall, arrest all momentum. Engorgio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Talking heads. Yeah, the shrunken head. Oh. Um, as with the night bus scene in general, when I saw it the first time, I was like, ah, that's a nice little addition. Um, I think it was the interviews with Lenny Henry not shutting the flip up. Um, that that really killed my uh, my patience with the talking head, the, the the little guy. It's not in the book. They added it just for wackiness effect. Lenny Henry is one of the least funny comedians in the world, and that's saying something. I assume uh, it was a package deal because they got Dawn French in to be yeah. fat lady, so I assume that Lenny was just hanging around the set and they thought they'd put him to good use. I like, don't get me wrong. I Some of the cream of British talent, and Lenny Henry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I love like to briefly go on this. I love Dawn French. I think she, I I find her funny. I love Vicar Dibley and all that. And she can be comedic. And then if you watch Vicar Dibley, she can actually do some really kind of not obviously like Oscar winning or anything, but some quite touching, dramatic scenes in that show. And then in this, she was just utterly dire. And there was no need for her because the first fat lady they had. What happened to that first fat lady? Hyacinth. I, I don't know. They just they went for the more comedic comedic angle, she, which doesn't make any sense. Because you don't see the fat lady after this film. Yeah. But the first fat lady is the. That's exactly how I pictured the fat lady. Yep. So why they brought in Dome French, I don't know. Was well, a case of the fat, the fat lady? Because <laughs> they had Lenny Henry there already. <laughs> I, I, is it a case that maybe the original fat lady was like Zoe Wanamaker and asked for more money? Oh, is that oh, what happened? Tell you what. Seriously? She was Marcus Chong. Yeah, well, let's see you try to do another movie without Madame Hooch. Okay, okay. done. We've done <laughs> six. Marcus Chong was the guy who played Tank in the original mm-hmm. Matrix, said, let's see you try and make two Matrix sequels without Tank. And they didn't, because there are no Matrix sequels. I'm with Leah. I agree, sir. I agree, Leah. That's brilliant. Okay, Leah, you can verify this one, and possibly Neil, depends on how closely you read it. Uh, classes cut to a bare minimum. Pretty you mean I mean, just, they do that with every book. As in just the time that you see them in yeah. their classes? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's that's pretty accurate. That's pretty much the same with every Harry Potter book, because there was a lot of Tom Brown school days, kind of Ian Blyton, kind of, you know, and now we're in potions class, and maybe some important stuff gets said, maybe nothing important gets so, said. That's With all these movies with the class stuff, they tend to cut it down to the bare minimum of yeah. what's needed. It's possibly one of the, 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 good, the great things about the books is that you do get lots and lots of stuff which isn't actually relevant to the plot. So when you do manage to piece something together or it gets revealed to you which was relevant to something you remember, you're like, oh, there was that bit. But if they only in the movies tell you what's relevant, it's like 
okay, I'm just going to piece... Th- it's like they're giving you a jigsaw puzzle of exactly 500 pieces, and you're putting it together and going, yes, that makes sense. But that's perfect- just the constraint of, of a movie more than a, the book. Yeah. Apparently, you can verify this, uh, Leah, Cedric Diggory was in this. Yeah, he's the captain of the... Is it the Hufflepuff team? Hufflepuff. Yes. Yeah, he's the captain of the Quidditch team. Does he sparkle? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know they don't mention it's raining it? during the Quidditch match. And it's ah, night you're right. Yeah. You're right. So he's okay. He's he's fine. That's that's the only reason. But no, I, they cut. I mean, they cut out so much of the Quidditch stuff that that's that's why you know you don't you don't ever actually see him because he's he's not mentioned beyond that. But he is called out by name um, I, as the. I, I think he's the captain and the seeker. I believe. Isn't this the book where we're introduced to Cho Chang? Cho herself was another casualty of the Quidditch thing because that's the only place she shows up. Mm. Okay, uh, serious backstory cut to the bone. The Marauders cut to the bone. Much of the plot conveyed in expositionary scenes rather than actually properly discussed. Uh, and uh, the late arrival of the Firebolt and no pig widget. Uh, how did the Firebolt work in the film? The Sorry. Firebolt arrives what, not long after he gets... He arrives after he loses his broom to the Whomping Willow. It's a gift from Sirius. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't say it's from Sirius. And yeah. It's taken away from Harry because they believe it may be cursed in some way. Yeah. They still, obviously, everyone thinks that Sirius is out to kill him. And obviously, yeah. he suddenly gets the fastest broom in the world sent to him by Anonymous. Yeah. Kind of suspicious. And yeah. it really does bug me that the Firebolt doesn't turn up until the end of the movie. Yeah. Ultimately, it almost makes more sense the way that they did it. But there again, they got rid of all the Quidditch stuff because there's a whole... There's actually two kind of big subplots that that the firebolt uh go that the firebolt ties into in the book and it's the the quidditch stuff obviously because they end up winning the quidditch cup for the first time in however many years and blah 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 you know all that crap but there's that and there's also a lot of ron and hermione going at each other's throats through the entire thing and that's part of it because she rats him out she goes oh she goes to uh, mcgonagall and says you know harry got this broom and nobody knows where it's from you should probably take it away from him because it might be cursed and they, yeah, she's really concerned they, about him. They, well, yes, exactly, but they don't see it that way. They see it as Harry's losing his broom because Hermione is just being a, a snitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I eventually they prepare for that and everything's fine, but at the beginning, you know, that's just one more thing that sets them off against each other. I do recall that, actually, yeah, her and Ron being at loggerheads, because ultimately she behaved in an ethical way as far as she's concerned. She's yeah. totally in the point. And they um, really had to include the fireball anyway because it's needed for the next movie, rather importantly. <laughs> If he doesn't have a broom, he's kind of in... Well, he's got a problem. He's roast Harry. Once I, I remember having little people in some storyboards, playing some keyboards in an organ in the Great Hall, and Joe said, no, uh, there are no p- little people in this in this universe. I said, yes, but it's like Lilliput kind of thing. He says, yeah, it's a lovely image, but... <laughs> they, they don't, they, they don't make really sense mean. in this universe. I wouldn't universe. let him do it. That's not fair, is but it? She was just about trying to serve as much as possible the story and the spirit of the story because that's what is great of the book because you, the third book is for me so abstract and, and deals with so many different abstract concepts but at the same time is in the frame of an adventure. Alfonso has had very good intuition about what would and wouldn't work. He's put things in the film that without knowing it um, foreshadow things that are going to happen in the final two books. So I really got goosebumps when I saw a couple of those things where I thought people are going to look back on the film and think those were put in deliberately as clues. Joe wants the movies to be faithful to the books. On the other hand, she realizes that they're completely different 
mediums. To be entirely faithful to these movies would be, you know, 16 hours long. In this film, what I found the theme was about a child trying to find his identity as a teenager. We found the theme, and then whatever stuck there, we kept, and whatever didn't. Sorry, as long as didn't affect or contradict no, either the universe or what is What's to come. I mean, I said to Steve Clovis many a time, "Damn it, I wish I'd written that." You know. So, but obviously, that's what you want, isn't it? You want to be working with people who who come up with great stuff. It, you, it's 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 great. You know, when I'm looking around for all these little bits that, that are completely consistent with the world, but I, you know, I didn't write them. I wish I had, but there you go. I think in this case, the book and the director were really made for each other. There's a unity about the film, there's a consistency about its tone and its feeling that's very, very enjoyable for me. And that's not a very easy thing for, for the author of the original material. And I'm completely happy, and I, what more can I say? Expecto Patronum! Can I also mention the comic moment, because we, we didn't. Oh, <laughs> uh, we didn't, yeah. Uh, Neil, describe it, because I think I know the one you're talking about. So there's the scene where Ron's been dragged into the underneath the Whomping Willow when Harry and Hermione are trying to give chase, and it leads to a rather, and I would say, not good-looking CG moment, so flinging tree branches and stuff, but there's a moment where the Whomping Willow has got hold of Hermione. Yeah. And sort of swings around in a rotation, and Harry just stands there, and as the branch goes past, <laughs> she Hermione, grabs. <laughs> Hermione grabs Harry. Now, obviously, physics don't apply in this movie because she would have gone past and he would have gone straight away. Now, we get the cartoon pause <laughs> for <laughs> Harry to realise what's about to happen. Do the expression the, and then gone. The Wily Coyote off a cliff looking down, then falling. No, I look down to hold the sign, then fall. Yes. <laughs> I love that moment, but it is a complete and utter disregard for the laws of physics. This is the film where they start to go a little bit more over the top and like very more fi- kind of filmic rather than adaptations of the book. Yeah. So, you know, the Buckbeak, I know that Buckbeak in the lesson, you know, lets Harry ride him, but I don't remember it going off all over the Great Lake and being a five-minute sequence with rousing John Williams' score. I don't remember I that. I didn't ask you, no. Leo, whether that happened no. in the book. You said, yeah, it's pretty well, faithful. I, yeah, he doesn't ride him across that. Yeah, that. And then I watch the film. Yes, he does yeah. ride him. No, he doesn't have such a great time. In fact, I exactly. think it makes him kind of nauseous. Okay. Exactly. The, See, um, in that, it's like, I'm free at last. The Whomping Willow and the all look, let's have a five minutes of them going up, down, left, right, and having to. That doesn't happen because obviously, you know, Crookshan selects them through. The, the Quidditch match, you know. Okay, right, Quidditch match, and it's stormy, and he sees the grim in the clouds, and the Dementors come. That That's fine. They didn't need to have the snitch go, like, friggin' miles into the air. Um, I mean, he's down near leaving the atmosphere the height he goes. You know, like they, just, they, was, they went a little too far in some of the scenes for my liking. And that kind of continued in the next one. But I'll go into that another, another time. So <clears throat> let's just talk about Harry at the very, very close. The, I suppose the last point is that he's presented with this, this, this wonderful possibility of, of, of a new life and a, a new family and being able to live with someone he actually cares about. He's looking for an alternative to going back to the Dursleys at the end of the year because he's just got to the point where just being around them is killing him inside. And I have 
really completely relate to, to, to that, that that sense of feeling of, of desperation to escape from your, your parental home. I, in, in the late 90s, I was climbing the walls to be able to get out of my, my father's house. So it's just so sharp and so sad that he has to sort of kiss goodbye to that so early and then have it snatched away. Watching it in retrospect... It's, it's like you're sort of looking at the hope on Harry's face as he's flying away, and it's like, you know, he's, he's got this escape, but things are about to get exceptionally dark for him. That's actually another difference from the book, just a, a minor one, but he um, it, it almost ends on a little bit more up note in the book because he goes, you know, they, it actually shows him going back to the, to the Dursleys, and he has this letter from Sirius, and Vernon says something like, oh, that better not be another permission slip, because you're, you're screwed if it is. And he goes, oh no, it's from my godfather. He's a convicted murderer, and he's still on the run, but he likes to check in and make sure I'm doing okay. And then he just kind of trots <laughs> off with this big smile on his face. So, yeah. That would also have been a good ending to the film. I really like the way it ends with him on the firebolt. It's just like a lovely elated moment, but that would also have been, that would also have brought it back to a domestic level, where it's like when this boils down to this, we began with Harry in a very difficult domestic situation, and we are ending with him now able to deal with it. It would have felt a bit more whole. That's something that's kind of missing from all but the first movie. Like they all, they always, all the books ended, as far as I can remember, with, well, almost all of them ended with him either on the train home or arriving back at the Dursleys and kind of bringing the whole year full circle. Yeah. So you're back, like, you know, as much, for all the things that he faced in that mag- magical world, he's back trapped in the muggle world. And as much as, you know, as we were saying earlier, like, the world's become much more interconnected in this film, but there is still that separation, and they do get separated at the end, and it prepares... It, at the end, he is cut off. And that's the crucial point. At the end of yeah. each year, no matter what he's accomplished, no matter what he's learned, he is cut off from the world that he belongs in, and he has to reintegrate himself at the start of every uh, of the next year, after the summer, each year. And that's not quite carried across in the movies. At the end of every film, it ends in Hogwarts with a sort of a romantic shot of it, and, yeah. and it's like, you want to come back to Hogwarts buy your ticket for the next film now. That's true. That is true. And it's it's just this sort of wonderful it's this longing and yearning to be part of that. So it's almost like if you go if you ended with the Dursleys each time you'd be like, I am back to my horrible drudgy reality of a life. It's it's almost like they're delaying that sense when you get out to the car park of Ugh, where's my car? And sort of the only one that it doesn't, it's still in Hogwarts, but it's film seven. And it's a violation of the worst kind. So I suppose ultimately they they start as they mean to go on in terms of that you never see the world outside of Hogwarts before the credits roll. Before we go, pimp your shows, gentlemen and ladies. Uh, Chris first. I, um, I can be found at the Merry Gamers, the Merry Gamers.net, and of course the podcast, the Merry Gamers. 
you can find us at Game Burst, which is gameburst.co.uk. We're a twice-weekly gaming podcast, and uh, we've got some bloke Neil with us that we can't shake off. You can find me at Game Burst, where I'm along with my friend Capital D over there, where we cover the weekly gaming news, and we have plenty of others to keep you going through the week. And also at kds20.blogspot.com. And as I mentioned, our most recent episode does have him on as well. Uh, you can find me at gamerdoor.net and also occasionally at uh, Gonzo Planet. <laughs> I have stuff on Gonzo Planet, and um, I'm usually hanging around Twitter. And before we go, I think we've just briefly got to talk about John Williams' score. You were disappointed with the uh, second one, weren't you? He redeemed himself in number three. Absolutely. There's so much variation and so much inventiveness in this one. It's Mm. really sparky. There's nothing copy-pasted like it was in the second one. Um, And like you said, the window to the past theme is amazing. And the, the I'm going to call it the Buckbeak theme, but I don't know what it is. But the music Buck when he's flight, Buckbeak's flight. There you go. That music is amazing, and it's again, it's kind of got that that John Williams grandeur about it. You've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter Review podcast. I've been Alex Shaw, and I solemnly swear I am up to no good. That's the next bit. No Cho Chang. Because, and that annoys me. Because, and that, well, in, in fact, that's something about the book that annoys me. Because I don't like the fact that Harry ended up with Ginny. And that's a pathetic <gasps> point. Dude, get and, used to it. I, no, I know. You are going to have some freaking explaining to do in the next few episodes. I, okay, no, it's simply because... We've got some Ginny lovers here. Well, no, I'll explain myself right now. Third book, introduce Cho Chang, the girl that he, you know, he meets on the pitch and kind of admire, you know, kind of fancies and... A.K.A. Wet Mop. Carry on. Doesn't really do anything about it. Fourth book, builds up the courage, asks her out, she turns him down. Fifth book, asks her out, they kiss, so they're technically going out, etc. Sixth book, all of a sudden he fancies Ginny. I know, no, I don't... Uh, I, no, I, I know in the book, because she, she was, um, felt really guilty about Cedric Diggory, and she cried a lot. And that basically is a turn-off for 15-year-old boys. Yeah, maybe, but no, because... No, and how he, often do you get your first love or your first crush? Well, yeah, tell me about it. But but that's the thing. I I, you know, I carried crushes, you know, when I was at school, I carried a crush for like three, four years like he did. And I didn't then automatically fancy someone else. Maybe that's it's, just me, but like... I can't... I just, I don't know. It's surely just, it's morganic in the book. It's just like little things like Ginny. Oh, Ginny's looking pretty good. No, it's, no, it's not. It's, it was just suddenly an overnight thing. Cho, Cho, Cho was a, a thought all the way through, through, all the way through from book three to book five. And all right, fine, in book five, her friend betrays them and he, he's, he's annoyed by that and he's upset by that. Hmm. But then just literally, it just, it comes out of nowhere in book six that all of a sudden he fancies Ginny. And I Does don't... It, and I know they built they build it up in the book in that you know, we can smell her when he smells the love potion and he he gets annoyed when he sees her with a boyfriend. But like I don't know, it just it bothered me when you spent three Dean books. Handsomest boy in school. I spent <laughs> three books rooting for him to get Cho Chang. I had why she's she's awful. She's actually quite nice in uh, in four, but uh, she's 
by by the end of that, oh, I, basically, I, I just, Cedric's I, death I and understandably so affects her deeply. I felt like I'd been I'd been led for three books to root for him and Cho, and for hope to for hope for him to get Cho, and then all of a sudden I'm expected to think that he likes the you know the the younger sister of his best mate, who previously he showed no interest in at all, and I think was even a little kind of not weirded out or embarrassed, but like it, it just. He, he was nonplussed by the fact that she fancied him back in book two when she was like ten. Uh, eleven, but okay. Whatever. I was going to say, she's only a year younger than they are. Yeah. yeah just... I, I think she kind of, uh, she won me over the actual, uh, the actress and the character when in film six, which is quite a long way through. Although she's, she's really quite competent and it also teaching her in book five slash film five. There'd have been little stirrings there. I don't know. I'm going to need to reread that thing again, or I'll have Leah tell me how it goes. Don't say no. Um, <laughs> the thing that wins me over is when they're doing Quidditch, and she's his like second in command, and all the other guys are talking, and he's trying to get them to calm down. And she goes, "Shut it!" And they do, and it's like, "Oh, actually, yeah, you know what? She's worthy of the skull." Well, film six at the start of film six, he's trying to hook up with some random woman, at a, a random girl at a station, which wasn't happening. But I'll get into that in film in the film six episode. But like, I, just, I don't know. For me, the Ginny thing came out of nowhere, and I don't like it. Oh, I don't because know teenage we... boys are so consistent. Okay, we're Sharon there. You're losing out. I'm gonna flip a coin to see if this is making the final cut. <laughs> <laughs> I'd cut it out. <laughs> Just to be, leave no. the whole thing as an outtake. To, to be continued, Ginny Weasley must be avenged. <laughs> okay. <laughs>